This episode of The Jewish Views was recorded around and or before the 25th of March. Any information that is outdated in this program is not meant to mislead or indeed misrepresent anything that may be going on with the current COVID-19 situation. Hello and welcome to a rather unusual edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Coming up on this programme, Richard Verber from the United Synagogue will talk about the ways in which the United Synagogue, like many branches of the religion, are having to adapt following the outbreak of COVID-19. Eliza Klein, CEO of One Table, on how her organisation is revolutionising Friday night dinners. Rabbi Charlie Baginski reflects on the work of Rabbi Danny Rich, who has just announced he is standing down from his role in liberal Judaism. Robbie Greengrass chats about his production, The Gate, about life on a kibbutz. Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips will give us some top tips for what is set to be a very unusual Pesach, to say the least. And our rabbinic thought for the month will come from Rabbi Laura Jenna Klausner, senior rabbi for Reform Judaism UK. But before all that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. Two members of London's strictly orthodox community have died after contracting coronavirus, and a member of Manchester's Haredi community is understood to be in intensive care with the disease. The Board of Deputies confirmed the deaths as Vili Stern, who was 85 and a survivor of Belson, and Rena Feldman, who was 97. The deaths came amid concern that the strictly orthodox communities in Stamford Hill and elsewhere were failing to heed the repeated warnings that social contact needed to be minimal. And the Board of Deputies has called on the government to respect religious traditions and allow burial for coronavirus deaths. Emergency legislation threatens to give the authorities the power to cremate bodies without consent. The board's president, Marie van der Zyl, said for the majority of UK Jews, the deceased must be buried, not cremated. And this applies as well to Muslims and some Christians. She thanked Labour MP Naz Shah for backing an amendment to the legislation. JW3, the Jewish Community Centre in northwest London, has temporarily closed to the public over concerns about the spread of coronavirus. Although tickets already bought would be refunded, JW3 said if some people considered donating the ticket price or giving money in another way to support it, it would be appreciated. New North London Synagogue has announced the suspension of all services and families scheduled to have bar or bat mitzvahs up to August would be contacted to discuss options. Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg said the decision had left him with a heavy heart. About a 1,000 Israelis who are stranded in Peru because the country has closed its borders are due to return home on some specially laid-on El Al flights. Peru's public broadcaster said there would be no cost for the travellers to bear. Israel's foreign ministry praised the airline, saying it had a long-standing tradition of stepping up during national emergencies. Most of the stranded Israelis are young people on their traditional post-army trek. The London Beth Din has broken hundreds of years of tradition regarding special kosher for Passover products by telling British Jews that they can use some regular products this year, such as white or brown hen eggs and pure honey from a reputable brand. The director of the Kashrut Division, or KLBD, Rabbi Jeremy Conway, said they'd been working overtime to support kosher shops and manufacturers, as well as housebound families, to create new guidelines for this year only. And lastly, a couple from Wellin, who were due to get married in June in front of 120 guests, brought their ceremony forward before the coronavirus could stop them. With the support of Woodside Park United Synagogue, Denise, who's 60, married 65-year-old David Lester, with the bride's elderly parents in attendance. The ceremony was live-streamed to family and friends in Israel, Dubai and the UK. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to a rather unusual episode of The Jewish Views. As you may have gathered, I'm flying solo today. And believe me, this is not by choice, but we, like so many others in this country, and let's be honest, around the world, have been quite affected by the way the COVID-19 outbreak has manifested itself. Not least of all, because like so many other community and public spaces, JW3 has had to temporarily close its doors. So we are not live from JW3 for this month. In fact, I am actually on my own in my home studio. 
But what I hope to do is bring you a flavour of normality here on The Jewish Views as I speak to a variety of guests and give you a taste of what would have been a perfectly normal addition had it not been for unforeseen circumstances. I would also like to point out at this stage that you may have heard about, if not, you will soon hear about it, the launch of JW3TV, a rather wonderful archive full of different shows that have taken place at JW3 in recent years. And you can go to jw3.org.uk for more information on that. But let's begin this episode in traditional style because you are listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Well, where else are we going to start this programme this month? But of course, talking about coronavirus, isn't it? What everyone is talking about at the moment. I'm afraid that the Jewish community has absolutely not managed to escape its fair share of disruption and total and utter what would appear to be at surface value chaos to the way that we live our Jewish lives. And just amongst many of the headlines making the papers in the past week or so, United Synagogue postpones all stone setting and limits funeral attendance. Kashra's authority relaxes Pesach certification rules during coronavirus crisis. And we've also got, as if that isn't bad enough, also you've got some good news, I suppose. First United Synagogue online permits for attracts a worldwide audience. Absolutely extraordinary times. Let's unpick this a little further with Richard Verber, who is from the United Synagogue. And I'm delighted to say joins me now. Richard, I'm so pleased that you've managed to take the time to speak to us on this month's programme, because let's be honest, we are living in some very strange times, Jewish or otherwise. Thank you, Phil. Thank you for having me. Yes, we certainly are. This is, of course, first and foremost, a human tragedy across the entire world. Uh, Thousands, if not tens of thousands of people will lose their lives. Unfortunately, as you've mentioned, we in the Jewish community here in the UK have not been spared either. Uh, I think already a couple of dozen people have passed away before their time. And unfortunately, I suspect that figure will rise. And now I know that you are exceptionally busy at the moment trying to deal with everything because not least of all of the headlines that I have read out just now are but a smidgen of what you have had to actually deal with in terms of logistics. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about how the US is, for want of a better term, bending the rules so that we may as a community, in particular the United Synagogue community, is able to continue practicing their Jewish lives to the best of the abilities that we're able to within the certain restrictions coronavirus places? Yes, with pleasure. So I wouldn't class it as bending the rules, but I would certainly say that our rabbis and the Dayanim of London Bethin have been very carefully thinking through what measures they can put in place that will allow Jewish life to continue, albeit in its more limited form. One of the things that the United Synagogue has had to do almost on a daily basis now is respond to the latest government guidance. In fact, our team meets every night at about nine o'clock in the evening in order to process the day's announcements and work out what that will mean for Jewish life here in the UK. Clearly, first and foremost, is the safety and the health of not just our members, but the wider Jewish community. And in fact, many of the measures that we've carefully and thoughtfully put in place have been designed to protect You've already mentioned that we've had to limit the number of people that can attend a funeral to just immediate family. You've already mentioned that we are postponing stone settings, which are an important part of Jewish tradition, but not strictly mandated within a year cycle and can be postponed. We've actually closed all our cemeteries now to the public. We've got to do whatever we can to protect human life. The big news story, all United synagogue shuls and indeed most shuls in the country, I believe, are closed. And whilst our buildings may be shut, our communities remain open. And in fact, I've been particularly inspired by the quite fantastic array of programs that our communities have already put on. So we've got lunch and learns happening via Zoom. We've got half-dollar parties happening via Microsoft Teams. We've got people joining phone chats left, right and centre. And actually, the community is just doing something a bit different. You mentioned the Kabbalah about Live, which I'm pleased to say we're now doing every week. We had 9,000 people watching that. Uh, Which is amazing, but let's unpick that a little further, shall we? Because that's, I think, where an awful lot of people are going to struggle, not least of all for those older members of the community who perhaps aren't necessarily that connected when it comes to technology. And of course, they've known any different other than just physically attending shul each week. But I suppose that there are going to be those who question, how is it possible that we are able to broadcast from a synagogue or from wherever it may be 
a Shabbat service that other people are allowed to therefore watch as well on technology and follow along? How does that all work within the boundaries of what we are and not allowed to do on Shabbat? We're not doing that on Shabbat. So we're doing that an hour or so before Shabbat and the service lasts about half an hour. It's the Kabbalat Shabbat part of the service, which just goes up to the cusp where if you were to continue, that would be you accepting Shabbat there and then. So we break halfway through. We allow people to finish whatever Shabbat preparations they need to do to light their candles and then they'll finish praying the service themselves before hopefully enjoying a meal with their families if indeed one can enjoy a meal like that in these times. And it's the same with our Pesach food. There are ancient regulations about not eating chametz. Everybody knows that. And there are also more modern but still centuries old regulations about trying to do the best you can when it comes to buying manufactured food to make sure that that has a kosher Pesach stamp. I've been learning fascinating details. So, for example, how do you decaffeinate tea and coffee? I have no idea how you do that. To me, it feels like a very natural product. But actually, industrial plants are built up, and you may have seen these on, on the BBC, how you do that sort of thing. So, for example, ethanol is used to decaffeinate coffee. Ethanol, alcohol, alcohol often can be from the hermit. Source. So actually, you're never quite sure what's in your food, which is why it's always best where you can to buy food with a special kosher Pesach stamp on it. That being said, a combination of a few factors, the virus going around, many people being isolated, many people unfortunately being unwell, many members of our community who would have enjoyed spending their Pesach abroad in Israel or elsewhere with their family and with their friends are here, and so demand is higher. And the London Bestin has recognized that given a situation where people may not be able to get to the kosher shops, given a situation where you may not live near a kosher shop, are there certain products which are not technically hametz, which we would certainly prefer people not to use during a regular Pesach, because as I say, ever since the 15th century, there's been this law that manufactured food should be bought to the kosher Pesach sample where possible. But given these circumstances, are there certain products which will be permitted this year. So that's what the cash division of the London Best Inn has spent weeks and weeks very carefully thinking and has launched its list, which we hope will help people have a kosher and easier Pesach than they would have done otherwise. And of course, it's not just the actual food itself, because let's not forget Seder night to many is going to be absolutely shattered this year. And of course, those who can't even get together a minyan for the Seder, is, it's going to cause real problems. And I don't know really sort of are those going to be able to actually carry on with Seder night as best we can if we don't necessarily have enough people around the Seder table? Well, you're right. I think for everybody, this Pesach is going to be different. You know, we say every year, don't we, why is this night different to all other nights? Well, I think we know when we say that part in our Goddard this year, why this night will be different. This will be a Seder-like night like no other, and unfortunately not in a good way. People split up from their friends, split up from their family. It won't be pleasant. Having said that, uh, there is no requirement to have a certain number of people around the Seder table. You can have one or you can have a 100. What's important is you've got the various ingredients in front of you, so the matzo which you need to have, the four cups of wine and your Seder plate. And actually, the United Synagogue is launching Seder night in a box, which is to help community members who perhaps can't get to the shops, who, who just can't face the cooking this year, where we will supply in a box everything that you need for your Seder table, your grape juice and your matzo and your Seder plate and a delicious three-course meal and some educational materials thrown in as well to help enrich and inspire your Seder night. And just uh, finally to you, Richard, because I know that you obviously have to get back and deal with the ever-changing face of mm -hmm. the news. Do we think that the US is going to have to sort of carry on chopping, changing, implementing different measures for as long as it takes? Or do you think we've pretty much got it sorted now and we'll be able to ride this storm? No, I think unfortunately there will be many, many more months of hard work in the very short term. It's about helping the members in our community who are struggling. And the United Synagogue Department already helped 600 families on a regular Pesach to be able to afford what they need. And this year we estimate the number to be well over 1,000. And so we're kicking into play with an emergency appeal which listeners can donate to, and by making sure that we're sending out extra Pesach parcels to those families that need it, and that's the short term. In the longer term, it's going to be about when will the government relax its regulations and allow our shuls to open. Our shuls are not just a place to, to govern, to pray, of course, they're a place of community and building community. So we're going to need to think very creatively over the coming weeks and months how we can create that community on, online. And you're right to raise the fact that everybody's able to access online. And we've got community volunteers across the different United Synagogues 
calling their older members, calling their more vulnerable members, asking what they need, seeing if there's a way they can connect them to the community. If we can't be together physically, what can we do remotely? That's the key question, I think, for the coming months. Richard Verber, Director of Communications for the United Synagogue, thank you so much for speaking to us on this month's edition of The Jewish Views and please to you and your family and everyone at the US, stay well and we look forward to hopefully speaking to you on happier times in future. Thank you, Phil. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, it may seem that Friday night is a long way off from spending with friends and families of, well, traditional Shabbats that we're all used to, But there is one particular application that has got off the ground not so long ago in America that is trying to reinvent the way that we think about Friday night dinner. Bear with us here. Let's get a bit of light and a bit of shade because I'm delighted to say we can now speak to CEO of One Table. Elisa Klein joins me now. Elisa, thank you so much for speaking to me on this month's episode of The Jewish Views. I think first and foremost, we have to establish because obviously I'm asking most people on this program today, how are you coping and everyone else in your family with everything that's going on with coronavirus? Are you okay? Thank you for asking. Yeah, I live in Brooklyn, New York. It is a bit of a ghost town in what is normally an incredibly vibrant neighborhood. And my children are taking their day school classes on the other side of this wall. I just overheard a Hebrew class and my teenager is doing her ballet workout in the other room. And my husband is running the summer camp that he runs from the third room. So You've got all sorts Um, of rooms in your house that you never knew existed, from a dance studio to a classroom to everything else, right? That's correct, to Shabbat headquarters right here in my bedroom. Well, Shabbat HQ is what we definitely (laughs) want to talk about, because let's imagine, and we can dare to dream, because isn't it amazing you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Let's look forward to the time when we can all, on a Friday night, get together as a community in the way that we traditionally did. You are potentially, shall we say, bending that tradition all the same. You're working with it. You're reshaping it for the 21st century. And I would love to hear what you're doing on that front with one table. Sure. So One Table was founded just a few years ago when technology was already, certainly for younger adults, the primary way that they were communicating with each other. And so the question was, how might we leverage technology not to keep people apart, but to bring them together? And so we invented One Table. It's based on a model that's along along the lines of like um, Airbnb, where basically you have the host market and the guest market. So if Randy from Chicago is interested in opening up his home and inviting people over, this is obviously in healthy times, then we can match guests and hosts up using technology and also provide Randy with all of the moral and financial and uh, religious support that he needs to create the dinner that really reflects his own personal style. So I Um, want us to unpick that in just a moment's time, but I think there'll be a lot of people who hear this concept and one of the first things they're going to think of when they hear it is that even if it is someone from the community, you don't necessarily know who you're letting into your home and they'll be quite worried about the security side of things. So how does that in particular work? It's a great question. So the way that we built the technology is that you can decide to either have a dinner that is private, where it's just people in your network, and it could be a friends and friends of friends, or you can invite people who you don't know, and there is an approval or vetting process. So let's just go back to Randy in Chicago. He has decided that he wants to have a Game of Thrones themed menu for his Shabbat dinner. (laughs) Um, And so he is really excited about introducing people who love that show as well. And so when you request a seat at his table, he might say, hey, tell me why this dinner. And they might share their favorite character or some other thing that they're excited about. He can then look them up within the one table technology. He's also probably going to see if he has connected with this person on some form of social media, right on Instagram or Facebook or, or even LinkedIn so that he can feel confident that this is the right fit. And if it's really not the right fit, he can say, I'm so sorry, this isn't the right fit for you. But do you know about these five other dinners? And the app is designed to do that, to just be as empathetic as as technology can be. A lot of what we've learned is the more a host gives a thorough description of what he or she is trying to accomplish, 
the everything from the menu to how people might dress to what they might be talking about or what they might not be talking about, their approach to Jewish ritual, all of those things make it easier for the guest to feel comfortable, to know what to expect, and to actually RSVP. RSVPing is not a normative behavior well, certainly in America right now, but certainly also for this generation, right? People tend to say, oh, sure, I'll be there and then decide last minute, which is really difficult if you're hosting a dinner and planning a menu. So, so we well, actually, really let's talk about, can we, can we talk about the menu? Because behavior. actually, that's what yeah, I want to look at. I'm really interested in this because, of course, it's the first thing that strikes me with this. We've covered security, which is great. Clearly, you know, the people that are involved are very well vetted, which is great. However, a lot of the thing that sort of that comes up on Friday night in terms of if you're hosting a dinner, and I'm not saying that people do this for the wrong reasons, but is the cost. We can't overlook the fact that it does cost a lot of money to put a Friday night dinner on. And so is it down to the host to pay for it? Do people have to pay for the privilege of going to it? How does the cost side come together? That's a great together? question. Uh, one of the first things that we learned when we tried to understand what the barriers were for people to actually do this. First, just so you know, is confidence. Second, maybe the physical space that they have and, and connected to that is usually financial resources. Imagine that it costs basically a week's worth of groceries to host a Shabbat dinner. So at my stage of life, that feels normative. But for someone, again, who is, let's say, you know, Randy is 26 and makes enough for himself, but doesn't make enough to support that many other people, that's going to be a reason for him not to do this. So One Table partners with philanthropists to make what we call nourishment credit available so that if you are a vetted host on the One Table platform, you can receive financial support in the form of an online gift card for groceries or prepared foods or maybe even a table setting or a beautiful bottle of wine, flowers, challah, whatever you need to make it easier for the range of 10 to $15 per seat at the table. Now, in principle, this sounds like a great concept, but what kind of response have you got from it since launching? Thanks for asking that question because we have been obsessed with data. I don't think you can be a successful organization at this day and age and not really understand how that works. So I'll tell you that on an average week, there are about 250 dinners hosted by and for young adults. Sorry, did you say 250? I did. And that's a pretty average week. And I will tell you that even since the last three weeks of the COVID reality in which we're living, we have still had about 250 dinners. They have just shifted from being large in-person dinners to intimate dinners and also virtual dinners. That calculates to about 155,000 unique participants so far. We average between 60 and 70,000 people using one table per year in the U.S. right now. That's absolutely amazing. Now, of course, there are going to be those listening. I know of several people here in the UK who would love to know whether or not, do you have any plans to turn it international? Are you going to bring it to the UK? God willing. In the past 12 hours, despite COVID-19, I have been on the phone with people in Australia and Tel Aviv, and I have had multiple conversations with folks in the UK as well. Yes. Uh, if, if you are out there and you're thinking about how could we bring this technology and the support and this community for young adults to the UK, let me know. Send me a line. I'm Elisa at OneTable.org. I would be delighted to have a conversation and figure out how we can bring it to your community as well. Fantastic. Well, we desperately hope that you will do. Please do stay safe through all of this coronavirus malarkey. You know, we obviously want to make sure that our friends and family, wherever you are in the world, all stay safe and stay well. Just finally, if anyone wants more information and more importantly, to maybe keep an eye as to when it may come over to the UK, <laughs> where do they go? They go to onetable.org. Right now, we have a whole new set of resources called Shabbat Shalom for people who are needing to celebrate Shabbat, but uh, in their own homes while they're sheltering in. We'll also be launching a Seder2020.org platform for people to host virtual Seders and encourage you to both contribute and borrow any of the content that you find. It is yours for the taking. Aliza Klein. CEO of One Table, thank you so much for speaking to me on this month's edition of the Jewish Views. And hopefully we'll speak to you again when you tell me it's about to launch in the UK. Absolutely. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, you may have seen that in the news this month, senior rabbi and chief executive of liberal Judaism, Rabbi Danny Rich, has announced that he is to step down. However, 
He may be coming to the end of his tenure, but it doesn't mean that liberal Judaism is going anywhere in a hurry. In fact, on the contrary, a dawn of a new era begins as I'm in the company of Rabbi Charlie Beginsky, who is set to take the helm whilst a successor to Rabbi Rich can be found. Now, Rabbi Charlie, I have to start off by asking you first and foremost, you're stepping into quite big shoes. Tell us a bit about Danny's tenure for starters. Yes, I'm taking enormous shoes, ones which... I don't think any of us feel qualified to fill. Rabbi Danny Rich was at Liberal Judaism chief executive role for 16 years, coming out of an over 20 years pastoral community rabbinate at Kingston Liberal Synagogue. So I followed Danny into Kingston Liberal Synagogue as their minister. So I'm quite used to following Danny around and being very aware of how much he achieved both as a community rabbi and then as the chief executive and senior rabbi at Liberal Judaism. Danny would call himself an empowering control freak, which I think really sums up his tenure at Liberal Judaism, where he made so many people feel like they had the power to change things, while at the same time really being behind most of it and really overseeing many of the creative and front-leading things that Liberal Judaism were involved in. Now, I'm quite lucky in the sense that, given the job that I do, I come across one or two rabbis en route. And with that in mind, there has never been anyone who has said a bad word against Rabbi Rich. So he clearly loves the job he does. He clearly is very proud of his community. And I suppose that that is something that hopefully is easily picked up on i was going to say is easily infectious but that's probably the wrong terminology the wrong in this term day and age. The but you know what i mean it's it's something that he influences others to do i think that the thing that danny influences us to do most of all or has influenced and will continue i'm sure to influence us to do is to see liberal judaism as part of our identity so what do i mean by that danny really embodies this idea that liberal judaism has something unique to offer to the world that the liberal bit sits alongside the judaism bit now people might express that or carry that out in different ways but being grounded in that sense of having to be radical cutting edge firmly based in tradition and yet also firmly based in modernity is something Danny embodies and leading from the front and I think that's how many of us would like to see ourselves living up to his legacy in following. Now there's obviously the cases you've already mentioned that a lot of people do start talking about liberal Judaism as no it's not quite Judaism. Now we've always said here at the Jewish Views as far as we're concerned we are for all branches of Judaism. It doesn't matter how religious or irreligious one considers themselves to be. Hey, even people who are secular, most welcome. But there's something about since Rabbi Rich has come along and done the job that he has done for liberal Judaism that I feel it's more out there that, as you say, it's sort of almost more seen as part of Judaism. But that's all well and good. But to actually be a physical presence like he is is quite a massive achievement, really. Yes, it's absolutely huge. And I think therefore we can't replicate it. So I wouldn't look, want us to look to try and do the same thing again. It's always a mistake where you try and rebuild the same thing. Liberal Judaism has had for the last couple of years its vision as being the home for everyone's Jewish story. And we are really trying to build not lots of Dannys, but lots of different ways of hearing voices and that actually helping and supporting our communities really be that home for everyone's Jewish story. Now that comes out of Danny's legacy, but isn't at the same time trying to replicate or create somebody in Danny's image, but rather actually spread that collective leadership across lots of different people. Now, as I mentioned in my introduction, you are going to be filling the position of chief executive as an interim position. So how does the process of actually choosing who will ultimately become Rabbi Rich's successor work? And could it be you ultimately? So first of all, I'm not going to step up as chief executive. We've actually got an SMT, a senior management team of four of us, each filling different roles. It happens that as director of strategy and partnerships and with the rabbinical role, that actually much of mine is taking over that front-facing chief executive role. But I'm really lucky to work with another three colleagues forming this SMT, which are filling this role at the moment. As for the future, we'll have to see what the board and ultimately it comes down to the board and our congregations to see what they decide to fill. For me, I think it's really important that we 
obviously live up to Danny's legacy, but I'm not sure that having the same model is necessarily the way forward. I think we're in a different era than when Danny first started at Liberal Judaism. And I think that this is the era of collective leadership. And I would encourage the board and our congregants to be looking, how can we be strong and lead while having a multitude of voices at the top? And clearly change is afoot. I mean, it's only this month that we've also heard that another big name in liberal Judaism in the form of Rabbi Pete Tobias is off to pastures new. So how do you think liberal Judaism will shape itself for future generations from now on? So I think we have a real responsibility as liberal Judaism to demonstrate, especially in this era, that this is not the time for one voice. Actually, this is the time of multitude of voices. And we've had a rabbinate up to now, which has worked very well for liberal Judaism, but isn't necessarily the future model, where we've had one rabbi in one community very much leading from the front. And I think we're entering a new time now where actually we want to build rabbinical teams, we want to encourage our community to work together to share their resources and that actually rather than a cult of personality and I'm not saying that either Danny or Pete were that but certainly they carried a lot of that charisma with them but we're in a different age now and I think we have a chance to see a different type of leadership coming forward both on the community level and on the movement level. One thing that strikes a lot of people when it comes to the progressive side of Judaism whether that be liberal, reform, Mazzotti, wherever it may be A lot of people say that times are changing and therefore that the people who belong to that community, younger people who belong to that community, are more, quote, secular Jews than they are religious. Does this worry you? Is there potentially a crisis facing the future of the more progressive movements in this country, do you think? And if so, what could you do to tackle that? That's a huge question and one that we probably could explore in an hours long conversation. I don't think we are in crisis, actually. I think that people often want to measure success in numerical people signed up to congregations or to movements. I don't think that's ever been our game in liberal Judaism. We are a small movement. I think we have a responsibility to look at different types of membership. What does it mean to be a member? And actually, we're now introducing what we're calling the passport membership, which is for people pre-life cycle events to be a member of the movement and to be able to go to any congregation or any event across the movement rather than having to sign up to one congregation because we know people are more transient but still want to have that sense of ownership you know they're coming out of youth movement feeling very attached to their youth movement very attached to that space and then feeling a bit like I don't know where I want to be and I think the passport membership will give them that anchor but we have to continually adapt and we have to continue change but actually crisis if it is crisis can be an opportunity And we have always had young people in our board, in our leadership positions. We have young rabbis, but we also have older people with with strong opinions and talking about where their need is. And our challenge is to get all of them in a room, not maybe not physically at the moment, but certainly metaphorically or virtually, and create the space where we can allow those voices to play off against each other and work out where our space is there. But I'm not worried about numbers. I don't think this is a numbers game. This is about identity. This is about finding a space to be Jewish. And liberal Judaism has always met that challenge. And I think we will continue to do that as we move forward. You have a glimpse into the future Five years' time from now, please God, we're all here, all healthy and all well, and all overcome the recent outbreak that we're facing in this country and around the world. But let's look forward. And let's say that five years' time from now, you have molded liberal Judaism into your vision. What do you see? I would see hubs of communities working together with shared collective rabbinates, so we build rabbinical teams. I would see our passport membership for people pre-life cycle up and running and very, very successful and seeing a really dynamic move of membership of people through communities. I would see that liberal Judaism is working particularly on the areas of poverty and supporting the needy within our community and taking a leading voice. I would see that we are known for that and we are able to make a massive difference in society and punch above our weight as we always have done rabbi charlie begins the best of luck stepping into rabbi rich's shoes as he 
steps down as chief executive of Liberal Judaism. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on this month's edition of The Jewish Views. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, we can't overlook the fact that clearly there was an array of different events that were supposed to be happening at JW3 due through the next month. But of course, due to the coronavirus, it is inevitable that some of those events, if not all of them, may very well not happen. Obviously, the best way that you can check on that is to keep on going to the JW3 website for updates, jw3.org.uk. However, one of the performances, which is more than likely going to be postponed, is The Gate. Now, The Gate is based on a kibbutz in the Galilee, and it has a really, I think, quite intriguing story. Performer, the writer behind it is Robbie Gringras, who joins me now, I'm delighted to say, but joins me from Israel because like everywhere else in the world, Robbie, I'm afraid you might not be going anywhere anytime soon. (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) I've got a nice view. You haven't? Well, that's for sure. I guarantee you've got better view than we've got here in London, wherever you are. So I suppose we should probably start off with, first and foremost, like I'm asking everyone for today's programme, is just to make sure that you are indeed okay as can be. Are you in lockdown yourself? Well, all of Israel is in something of a lockdown. So yeah, I'm basically at home. But in between shows, I pretty much work from home anyway. It's it's not yet hitting me too hard. This is just a normal day for you then? It's a, it's a it's a normal day. I, I don't have to see too many human beings. It's fine. It's fine. Well, there you go. Some people would pay extra for that. But unfortunately, of course, there are those who are having that inflicted on them without choice. Now, let's get on to more important matters, and that is the gate. Now, at the moment, that is scheduled for April the 23rd at JW3. Again, I must emphasize, we don't know if that's going to happen yet, but please do check the website for updates. If it doesn't, then we are probably looking at postponement, which is more likely to be the case. But at the moment, April the 23rd at 7.30, why not tell us a little bit about The Gate? The Gate is a a solo show based on the true stories that emerge from many different communities, Jewish communities in the north of Israel, in the Galilee area, where pretty much every small community on a hill, we live on a kibbutz, has a gate. We, we effectively live in gated communities in the north of Israel. And what always emerges is an argument on the kibbutz as to whether the gate should be always closed or whether the gate should always be open. And that's because the gate normally closes the road between the kibbutz or the Jewish settlement and the Arab village next door. So there's always a conversation about whether we want to be to signal our openness to our Arab Israeli neighbors or and or whether we also want to whether a community wants to isolate itself from its next door neighbors or feels that there's more of a threat of burglaries coming from our our Arab neighbors. And so the show itself is built around, first of all, the argument within the kibbutz as to whether the gate should be closed or open. And that they decide a classic Middle Eastern compromise that it'll be closed at night and open during the day. It's a classic Middle Eastern compromise because it seems to make sense, pleases no one and only makes matters worse. (laughs) And then it all comes to a head when an Arab woman from the village next door who's actually friends with people on the kibbutz and is doing some catering work on the kibbutz finds herself locked in. And everything kind of goes downhill from there. Now, whose side is the story told from? And I don't mean in terms of which side of the gate. I'm talking about that there are many people out there who say, well, if you're talking about conflict between Arabs and Israelis, you normally pick a side. Now, would you say that you've got quite a balance on this and that you are able to tell it from a balanced perspective? Well, so, so first of all, this show is about they're, they're all Israelis. They are Arab Israeli, Arab citizens of Israel and Jewish citizens of Israel, just so we're, we're clear on that one. And in terms of the side, look, it's a piece of storytelling. And so the voice is my voice. And so inevitably, you're going to be hearing the way in which I see the story. At the same time, I play several different characters and the, the, it's it's something kind of sensitive. If I'm playing an Arab Israeli woman who, who I know her quite well, but at the same time I can't 
even begin to pretend that I am coming entirely from her place. The way that it tends to work is that the Israeli Jewish characters that I play, you can very much see them physically. I take on their body shape, their accents, the the way that they speak, the kind of voice that they use. Whereas the Arab woman in the in the show, she's in the show, she's called Amal. I don't play her. I, I present her, but I don't perform her. And it's that sort of sort of sensitive play around as, as to whose voice you're representing. And as to taking sides, I mean, the, the, the show, I would say that the main at the end of the day, the main enemy in the show is dogmatism is the and it's happening more and more across the world on every single subject. Our need to take a side and stay fixed on that side and never change our point of view and never change our opinion, no matter what happens, is that dogmatism that's the that's the enemy that I would present in the show. An excellent point. Well made, I'm quite sure. Now, where did the actual idea come from? Is this because you yourself have experienced life on a kibbutz or is this from stories that you've gathered or how has that come together? Oh, yeah, I, I, I live on a kibbutz. Um, as, as we talk, I'm looking out of the window on, on the kibbutz and the, the view over to the to the Mediterranean about a, an hour's drive away from here. Yeah. And, and, and it's most I would say 90 percent of the show is built on true stories. And it happened one evening. Some guy was talking about how he he just had it. He just got it into his head that he needed the gate to remain open. So every evening he would walk over to the gate and splurge some chewing gum on the electric eye of the gate to make sure that the gate would always stay open. And he got into a fight with the guy who was trying to keep the gate closed. And and it, it's so absurd. It could only be true in Israel. That started the idea of, of putting the show together. And what sort of reaction would you say that you've got from the show so far? Because I'm, I'm assuming that you have performed it elsewhere. Yeah, sure. I, I've, I've performed it across the states. It's been in Cleveland and in New York in several places. And of course, to groups in Israel. And I've actually performed it on the kibbutz itself. Oh, wow. How did that go down? It was lots of fun having the the people who I was representing them on stage in a far more car- caricatured kind of way were sitting there and, and seeing themselves on stage. They seem to enjoy it. I, I haven't been. Well, who knows? I was going to say I haven't been sent to Coventry yet, but, you know, everyone's in, in isolation anyway. So maybe they have. I think I think we're doing OK. Excellent. What's the plan for this? Because obviously, here's hoping, please God, the performance does go ahead at JW3. As I say, at the moment, scheduled for the 23rd of April, we do have to be realistic given the current restrictions in place on travel. And of course, really how most places are in some sort of lockdown. It's not terribly likely, but that doesn't mean that it won't happen eventually. So with that in mind, what's the plan for it long term? Long term, the the show is going to tour. It's going to tour around Britain and it's going to be touring around North America and probably I'll take it to other English speaking places. And in the meantime, I'm going to be taking on a translator to put it into nice Hebrew. I could translate it into Hebrew, but the, the language wouldn't be rich enough. So I'll be translating into Hebrew and I'll start performing it around Israel in Hebrew. And because unfortunately, for example, the, the woman, the, the woman from the village next door, the character's called Amal, she doesn't have any English, so she hasn't seen the show. If were I able to do it in Hebrew, she'd get to see it and I would be able to take it around. So that's probably the next plan is a, a world tour. It's what tends to happen with my solo shows. I tend to perform them around the world for a year or two, get the show honed, get the script honed, and then translate it into Hebrew and perform it around in Hebrew. And I may well even get it into Arabic as well. Fantastic. Well, what I love about it is that it's all surrounding the concept, quite frankly, of a gate. And I love the fact that someone is that creative that you can look at that and think, I'm going to turn this into a production, which is exactly what you have. The production is called The Gate, and it is by Robbie Gringus, who we've been speaking to. Robbie, thank you so much for talking to me on this month's edition of The Jewish Views. If anyone wants more information about you, where do they go? robbygringrass.com but it's spelt the, the real way which is robbie r-o-double-b-i-e and gringrass is g-r-i-n like a little smile and only one s robbygringrass.com 
You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now it's time to catch up with our Jewish domestic goddess, Denise Phillips, who's going to give us a little bit of inspiration for what could be a rather tricky Pesach, to say the least. Denise, this may sound like a bit of an obvious question, but why is this Pesach different to all others? So this year, Pesach is different from all others because, of course, COVID-19. That has eaten its way into every aspect of business and Pesach is no exception. In fact, it feels like we are living through one of the plagues, never knowing who will be affected next. The usual secret to enjoy a stress-free Pesach is to plan early, from buying supplies to organising the cleaning of your house. However, this year there is a major risk to the supply chain because so many of them from Israel, America and France and factories and transport links have been severely disrupted. There is the extra demand due to families staying at home rather than going abroad to catered hotels and overseas families. It is estimated that this could double requirements. My advice, shop early. We only have a handful of kosher abattoirs in the UK and butchers are worried that personnel from the abattoirs might get sick and could possibly shut down. This would obviously make supplies scarce and unable to cope with the increased demand. A few useful, helpful tips to plan. Write a detailed shopping list that you won't be tempted to impulse buys of unnecessary purchases. Last year's list is always a good start. Try to create an eight-day menu plan, even if it's only of the main courses for dinner. It will give clarity to quantity to purchases and ingredients needed. Consider who is coming over to you. Is it wise to invite that elderly relative or even your own parents if it puts them at risk? Maybe you consider the option of a food delivery to them. And for the less orthodox, possibly a Seder via video call. Safety must be a priority. Start now, you will get the best variety. Avoid the rush and keep an eye out for those special offers. There are normally lots on offer in the supermarkets. And buy smart. Do not overbuy and check the use-by dates. Get an extra dozen of eggs. They're always needed. And be aware, this is really good, Tate and Lyle, Castor, sugar, demerara and granulated sugar is kosher all year. Just buy a new packet. And choose a Seder menu that is easy to serve, will not dry out if the Seder service goes on longer than anticipated. It always does. And leftovers will be fine for Yontif lunch the next day. Choose recipes that are specifically created KFP, kosher for Pesach, as these will always work. Trying to substitute regular ingredients for Pesachwan does not necessarily give the best results. Use fresh vegetables that are good value and don't go off such as celeriac, red cabbage, swede, cabbage of all varieties, garlic, potatoes, carrots and beetroot. Make excellent recipes. Exciting new kosher for Pesach products to look out for this year include. So if you're a great ketchup lover, Heinz tomato ketchup, a must is now on our shelves. There's a new range of flat, crisp bread matzah crackers, original and everything flavoured. Mahadrin have produced a whipped cream milky spray. Shevington's have a new blue cheese sold in 250 gram triangles. And Natural World, a vegan nut butters, have the following varieties available for Pesach to include. Almond, cashew, Pecan, pine nut, coconut cream, pistachio, macadamia and almond and coconut spread. And Tiptree has produced an extra supply of strawberry conserve and apricot jam to meet demands. Now this is another fantastic offer. Saxa fine salt, tailors of Harrogate tea, Yorkshire tea, Nescafe gold, Nescafe decaffeinated and original and Nescafe original decaffeinated are all certified kosher for Pesach, even though they don't currently bear the label kosher for Pesach Passover. So again, just buy a new packet. And finally, if you really don't want to cook your Seder, Ixit Caterers are now offering a delicious traditional selection of dishes, all freshly delivered in portions of five, to make life easy. So I'm wishing you a very, very healthy Pesach with your family, friends and loved ones. 
Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips there. Thank you very much indeed to her. And for more information, you can always go to jewishcookery.com. That is, of course, Denise's website. So jewishcookery.com for all information that Denise has spoken about. And not only that, obviously some delicious sounding recipes as well. It's now time for our rabbinic thought for the month. And this time it comes from Rabbi Laura Jenna Klausner, Senior Rabbi at Reform Judaism UK. This month is definitely going to be different than other months because together we are dealing with and getting stronger and understanding what it means to be a part of a pandemic, a global phenomenon where we are all dealing with the same kind of problems together. The difference between this situation, this pandemic, and other extreme situations is that often in extreme situations, It evokes social solidarity, but by nature, this one could have the possibility of fragmenting us, of separating us. And we are told by Hillel, do not separate yourself from the community. So when we are separating ourselves physically, even the more we have to look after other people, because this is about chesed. Chesed in the Torah is not just loving kind. It's not just me being nice to you or you being nice to me. There is always a mutual covenant between the Jewish people and God. So this is mutuality. When you are the recipient of something, give it back when you can. If you can't go and enter someone's house, leave them something. When you, if you get sick, people will look after you. And if not, ask for it. Ask for it from friends or from family or from the local borough, because the country and the state system that we have is here to help us. So chesed is about mutuality. We also have very deliberate ways of looking after ourselves. We deliberately thank God every single time we wash our hands. The bracha that ends, al nitilat yadayim, thanking God for making us odd, different, special, holy, by saying the blessing with intention every time we wash our hands. This month will be different because there will be events like funerals or shivers that will be done with only very few people. So find other ways to be alongside of texting or using online or phoning people or dropping off things to be alongside without necessarily being at the funeral or at the shiver. We're coming to Pesach this month, the festival of our freedom. We may end up doing starim in different spaces, in minyanim, in 10 people or even fewer. So this is the time to think, how can I look after myself? How can I wash my hands without washing my hands of other people? We need to wash our own hands. Don't wash your hands of anyone else because it is our job as Jews to deliberately with the blessing, make ourselves special and holy by caring for each other. Thank you very much to Rabbi Laura Jenna Klausner, Senior Rabbi for Reform Judaism UK, for our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. All I've got time to do is to say thank you to all of our guests, to Richard Verber from the United Synagogue. Thank you very much to Eliza Klein, CEO of One Table, Rabbi Charlie Beginski from Liberal Judaism, Robbie Greengrass talking about his production, The Gate. Please do check the JW3 website for updates on when that may be rescheduled for aw3.org.uk to Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips and of course thank you goes to our producer Sue Greenberg who has worked quite tirelessly once again putting this production together thank you also to you at home for listening don't forget you can listen to this episode or indeed any previous episode of the Jewish Views by visiting our website jewishviews.co.uk please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application from the whole team here at the Jewish Views. We wish you Hagsamech, try and have a very happy and healthy Pesach, whatever lies ahead. And with a bit of luck, we'll be back in some sense of normality next month here on The Jewish Views, when I very much hope you'll join us then. And let it be known that this episode is dedicated to Rabbi Neil Craft. I'm Phil Dave. See you again next time. Bye-bye.